Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Happy New Year! Yeah! Uh, It's 2024 as we record this. Or as we share this, we're recording in 2023, to be honest. Um, But this is a time of year, it's come up for us before, where we start to talk about things like calendars and planners, which are my personal love. Um, Put me in a planner store and I'm very happy. And we have talked a little bit about these topics before. We talked about almanacs a little bit on our episode on Benjamin Banneker, and we have certainly talked about calendars before a few times, but... Uh, one you may remember is our episode about the French Republican calendar. But I really found myself wondering specifically about day planners recently uh, because I was setting up my 2024 one and I was getting excited. Uh, it has droids on it. We love it. Um, because I still love a physical paper planner. I know not everyone does and some people have transitioned over to digital. But I started to wonder about when people started using actual planners. Uh, And that really means that we have to talk about almanacs because the two are kind of tightly linked uh, in how one led to the other. And so here we are today. If you're making your planner, I hope this is a good listening material for you. (laughs) To review the basics, an almanac normally contains things like a calendar, times for the sunrise and sunset, astronomical information, tides, climate, holidays, festivals, that kind of thing. You can make a comparison of an almanac being kind of like an analog version of a smartphone for people living in pre-digital times. Of course, there are still almanacs today, including some that have their own web pages, which is a little funny to me. Uh, So everything you might need to know in terms of time, weather, when to plant, that was all in the almanac. Uh, so folks had a ready reference to stay informed on those kinds of things. So the roots of almanacs 
are found in calendars that had notations correlated to dates. Those date back all the way to ancient Egypt. These calendars were tied very closely to the activity of the Nile River as it was the cornerstone of survival. So the phases of flood, spring, and low water, which was also the harvest period, were all noted alongside marking the days. And Egyptians of the time understood the lunar cycle, and they had marked the idea of 12 cycles in a year, but the three seasons of the Nile may have really been the more important markers to their calendar. This is actually a matter of debate among historians, but the period of flood uh, ran from fall to midwinter. Spring, which was also called emergence sometimes when you see people talking about it today, was from midwinter, so like January to late spring around May. And then what they called their harvest encompassed summer and into the autumn. But these weren't fixed dates because the movements of the Nile could shift year to year and predictions of those shifts would be baked into the calendar. Although that meant that there was a little bit of variability on average. The year ended up following 365 days as we recognize it today. But there were some that were a little longer and a little shorter. Um... We don't know exactly when this way of tracking the year began, but there are rudimentary versions going back to 3000 BCE. Ancient Greek and Roman calendars also incorporated culturally important information along with the days and the years, things like feasts, days that were likely to bring good fortune or bad, While we don't have surviving examples of Greek almanacs, they were mentioned specifically by the mathematical commentator Theon of Alexandria, who lived in the 4th century. He, incidentally, was the father of Hypatia. Yeah, I feel like in doing an episode about calendars and almanacs, we bump up against so many of our our other things we've talked about. Yeah. So then the Fasti, which means days, was sort of a Roman list version of an almanac. Fasti dies, for example, translates to lawful days. And that list indicated what days it was legal to conduct various kinds of business. Fasti sacri were lists of sacred days, and Roman religious leaders were responsible for mapping out the various important times of the years, including religious festivals and observations. Then, according to the 1890 Dictionary of Greek and Roman Antiquities, at some point, a scribe is said to have completely broken with tradition and published the calendar used by the priests of Rome for the public to see. Sometimes this is described as displaying tablets. Uh, It's very dramatic. And then it was kind of like time had become democratized in that moment, and this catalyzed the development of a common calendar that included a more comprehensive collection of information. The Chinese Tungxing is an almanac full of dates that are auspicious for various activities and occasions. The lore around its origins attributes the creation of the first one to the mythical Yellow Emperor around 2600 BCE, This is a version of an almanac that has endured to present day, although the format of it has evolved a number of times. Yeah, my understanding is that people will still sometimes consult it to pick out things like wedding days or um, other important, important days for their family. The compilation, though, of these various types of information, so combining astronomy, climate, holidays, etc., into one source for personal use is credited to the Arabic-speaking world. The word 
Almanac means climate in Arabic, and according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word almanac originates as a Spanish-Arabic word in the Middle Ages, although its specific point of origin is unknown. This is all a little bit disputed, though, because it may have been a misinterpretation or a borrow word that was adopted into European use. It appears in medieval Latin as almanac with a K, and it wasn't used in the sense we know it today, definitively until the 13th century. That mention is from 1276, when English philosopher Roger Bacon published his book, Opus Magus, that year. He suggested that the word be adopted for use when referring to tables of astronomical information. One of the reasons there's some fuzziness here is because the first almanac is usually credited to a man named Abu Ishaq Ibrahim ibn Yahya al-Nakash al-Tujibi al-Zarqali, who lived and worked on the Iberian Peninsula in the Muslim-ruled region known as Al-Andalus, so broadly within Spain today. Al-Zarqali was born in 1029 during the Islamic Golden Age, which just came up in our episode on the Banu Musa. Al-Zarqali was an astronomer and an astrologer, and in 1088, he wrote what's now called the Almanac of Zarqali. It's believed to have been based on a Greek work, but the information in it regarding astronomical information is local to Toledo, where Al-Zarqali lived and worked. The first mass-printed European almanac was the work of Johannes Müller von Königsberg, better known as Regio Montanus. He was born on June 6, 1436, in Königsberg, Germany, and became a well-known and respected mathematician and astronomer, and he was eventually employed by the Vatican. He also became a printer, and he produced his almanac, Ephemeridis Abano, starting in 1474. Although Reggio Montanus died two years later, his almanac continued until 1506. 23 years after the first of the Reggio Montanus almanacs, France's first almanac was produced. That was the 1493 Calendar of Shepherds. This book became very popular and was soon picked up for publication in Geneva as well, and then it was translated badly, by all accounts, into Scots dialect for publication in England in 1503. It remained in print in England continuously until 1631. This particular almanac had the types of things that we mentioned already. Astronomical tables, seasons, planting and feast days, plus medical information, poetry, and biblical contents. One of the versions of the Calendar of Shepherds that was published in England was produced by Richard Pinson. Pinson was born in France, in Normandy, and after he moved to London, he became one of the city's most prominent printers. And in his 1506 version of the Calendar of Shepherds, Pinson wrote that it had been translated into, quote, corrupt English and not by no English man. Pinson claimed that he had his edition newly translated, although according to a 2003 paper on the Calendar of Shepherds by Martha W. Driver, none of the English-language versions were direct translations. Some passages were completely different new information, including one edition that included kind of what amounted to an illustrated diet and fitness plan allegedly used by shepherds. Pinson was, by the way, appointed Henry VIII's printer just a few years after his first version of The Calendar of Shepherds was published. In 1565, Joachim Hubris' An Almanac and Prognostication for the Year of Our Lord God, 1565, serving for all Europia and also most necessary for all students, merchants, mariners, and travelers, 
both by sea and land, composed and gathered by Joachim Hubri, doctor in physic. Also, the most principal fairs in England, very necessary for people that do resort to the same. Uh, that's when that came out in 1565. This gives a sense of how much these had become seen and marketed as repositories of basically all the vital information a person would need to get through a given year. Coming up, we're going to talk about the first almanac that was printed in the British colonies of North America. But first, we will pause for a sponsor break. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When yes. Those, when those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> you're here. You're here already. No. Uh, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this. That's, day. Day. that's we the We didn't problem. realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. We were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. Were kids and, and so self involved. Egomaniacs. Yeah. And <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how oh. lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. The first almanac published in Britain's North American colonies was published by Mariner Captain William Pierce. Pierce arrived in Boston in 1632, just two years after the city's founding. And seven years later, he produced his almanac, which was an almanac for New England for the year 1639. By this time, almanacs were becoming recognized as important tools, and in 1647, Harvard published an almanac compiled by one of its fellows, Samuel Danforth. Danforth, born in 1626, was an astronomer, mathematician, Puritan minister, and a poet, and his almanac reflects these various disciplines. 
His first almanac had an essay that played out throughout the book at the bottom of each page or each section where he shared his thoughts about calendars and the heavens. And then in subsequent years, he abandoned the essay and instead wrote poems to put at the end of each month. These are considered secular poems, although his Puritan religion and morality is ever-present in them. For example, one of his brief June poems reads, Who digged this spring of gardens here, whose mudded streams at last run clear? But why should we such water drink, give loosers what they list to think? Yet, no, one God, one faith professed to be New England's interest. (laughs) Samuel Danforth also included in his almanac, a chronological table of some few memorable occurrences, which was not a predictive model of what to expect in the year, but instead a very brief history of the 20-year-old Massachusetts Bay Colony. Some of these are historically fascinating, and the insights that they offer into Danforth's views of events that we see very differently today For example, in January of 1638, the only note is, quote, Mrs. Hutchinson and her errors banished. We talked about Anne Hutchinson earlier this year in our episode on Mary Dyer, and her two trials were involved and had multiple facets, so it's interesting that Danforth notes it with just this five words. (laughs) Very minimal. Most of his history is this way. An entire year's news and events are boiled down to just a few sentences, Danforth's almanac was popular and continued for quite a number of years, although not with him. He gave the almanac to another person after a few years when he was offered a pastor position away from Harvard. During the time that North America was in the early stages of making print almanacs mainstream, there was a very interesting and different kind of almanac being produced in England. This type, called a clog almanac, didn't originate in England. It had actually been in use in Scandinavian countries for a long time before it had this surge in popularity in England. So a clog almanac is a wooden rod that's squared so that it has four distinct sides. And each side represents a quarter of the year with the days marked by notches along the edge. So when it's held by the handle, it's red from the bottom to the top. And then there are runes and other symbols that are carved into the clog at points on each face of the rod to notate the various happenings in the season and the year. And these were obviously not paper. They were something that would last, and they were meant to be used for more than one year. So they didn't reflect projections of a coming year, but more like, here are the standard patterns you can expect. And they served both a practical and sometimes decorative purpose, as they were also sometimes designed to be hung or otherwise displayed in the home. I'm imagining this as kind of a calendar yardstick. It's much shorter than that, though. It's like a thing you can easily hold in your hand. There are um, examples of them in museums, and they're like less than a foot long. They're not that big. Okay. To move on, Samuel Atkins prepared an almanac for 1686 titled Calendarium Pennsylvanians, or America's Messenger, being an almanac for the year of grace 1686, wherein is contained both the English and foreign account, the motions of the planets through the signs, with the luminaries, conjunctions, aspects, eclipses, the writhing, southing, and setting of the moon, with the time when she passeth by or is with the most eminent fixed stars, sun rising and setting in the time of high water at the city of Philadelphia, etc., with chronologies and many other notes, rules, and tables, very fitting for every man to know and have 
all which is accommodated to the longitude of province of Pennsylvania and latitude of 40 degrees north, with a table of houses for the same, which may indifferently serve New England, New York, East and West Jersey, Maryland, and most parts of Virginia. This is a good indicator that almanacs were also becoming more and more localized. And they just wanted you to know that everything's in here, you guys. Uh, In 1700, Vox Stellarum, The Voice of the Stars, was published in England by Stationer's Company. And this was an almanac written by Francis Moore, who was an astrologer, so it had a lot of astrology in it. It came to be known as Old Moore's Almanac, and that is still in publication. It, like many other almanacs, started to include more and more different kinds of material, including things like humor and short-form fiction and medical advice, etc., making it not only a reference book, but also a source of entertainment. I think this is sort of what, like, the old farmer's almanac also eventually yes, 100%. evolved into, uh, which is, I think, the thing that people might have seen the most around in the United States uh, today. Following the popularity of Vox Stellarum, there was a massive surge in the number of almanac titles. In North America, the 1720s and 30s were the time when several popular almanacs began publication. This included the Astronomical Diary and Almanac, which started in 1725 by a Massachusetts teenager named Nathaniel Ames. Nathaniel went on to become a physician, but he was only 17 when he first produced his almanac, and that continued for 50 years. After Nathaniel died in 1764, his son continued to publish the work for another decade. Yeah, apparently when Nathaniel died, there was this slight panic in the family because it was such a popular thing and a source of income that they saw other publishers kind of like thinking they would move in and claim that they were the new the new Nathaniel Ames Almanac, and his son was like, I'm just going to take this over. Um James Franklin put out the Rhode Island Almanac in 1728, five years before his more famous brother Benjamin started his own almanac under the pen name Richard Saunders. Poor Richard's Almanac, of course, became very successful, and it sold consistently for more than 25 years, offering Franklin a platform to share his thoughts on a wide array of subjects, plenty of which is really cringy by today's standards. But Ben Franklin not only jumped into a very crowded market with his almanac, he was really successful, and he was one of the few that managed to keep publication going through the Revolutionary War and beyond. Franklin met the demands of his audience to do so through things like adding some blank pages, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, or introducing small editions that were marketed to women and were described as being able to easily fit into a woman's handbag. The first nautical almanac, which was Nautical Almanac and Astronomical Ephemeris, was released in 1766. This ties into another old episode of ours from 2014 on the discovery of longitude, because the information in the almanac, which was published by the Astronomer Royal of England, enabled determination of longitude using the calculation of lunar distance, Nautical almanacs have since been published around the world, and in 1912, the U.S. Congress voted to share data, meaning in the most immediate sense that the British Nautical Office, formed in 1832, and the U.S. Nautical Office, formed in 1849, could work together to publish consistent information. Yeah, up to that point, they were both putting out almanacs, and sometimes they weren't saying the same thing. (laughs) 
Um, and since those are nautical and meant to travel, you can't be as localized. Uh, specialized almanacs also started to appear. Just as today there are calendars for cat lovers or fans of specific movies or TV shows, there were almanacs that aimed at specific demographics, like religious or social club affiliations. Some almanacs were also used as a way to promote ideas. The American Anti-Slavery Almanac ran from 1836 to 1843 as a way for the American Anti-Slavery Society to show people the realities of slavery. That almanac included the calendar and statistical information that other almanacs did, but it also included writing and imagery to convince more people to join the abolitionist movement, including illustrations of Black people both enslaved and free being tortured or being poorly treated, and this was apparently quite shocking to some readers. Notable anti-slavery activists were involved in this almanac's editing and publication over the years, including William Lloyd Garrison and Lydia Mariah Child. Okay, so how does this translate into day planners? We'll talk about that after we hear from the sponsors that keep things running here at Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. Yes. When those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> you're here. You're here already. No. Uh, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The thing. That's we the didn't problem. realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how how lucky we were <gasps> yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Be 
Even before there was anything labeled as a planner, there were planners. Uh, Most people were using their almanacs this way, often noting down important happenings in their lives or business dealings on the pages of the copy they were already carrying around with them. Because, yes, people carried them around with them. Uh, As almanacs became indispensable to daily life, they just were the most obvious place to jot things down. In addition to people just starting to write in the margins of their almanacs, booksellers and publishers started to address the demand for writing space in almanacs by including blank pages. Sometimes these would be bound in right along with the content, and then other times tipped in after the book had been assembled. Earlier, we mentioned Joaquin Hubris and Almanac and Prognostication for the year 1565, but that was not his only almanac. He also created one that he called Blank and Perpetual that was intended to give users a place to write down things like transactions that they wanted to track or other events worth noting throughout the year. Some other almanacs started to include blank space in the form of a free column included in the tables or even whole blank pages but all at the end of the book. So blank areas that were undefined to be used at the owner's discretion. Molly McCarthy notes in her 2013 book, The Accidental Diarist, that the rise in popularity of diary keeping in the 1800s has roots in the almanacs of the 18th century, writing, quote, the commercial success of the pocket diary in the 19th century had much to do with the genres and record-keeping habits that preceded it. The almanac paved the way for the daily planner, It accustomed buyers to a kind of writing that was regular but abbreviated, coded in a way that was restrictive but instrumental to a way of seeing and being in the world. Pre-made diaries, one of a variety of other blank books, such as scrapbooks, account books, and autograph albums, fueled a publishing industry that betrayed a commercial fervor for cheap print that began in the colonial print shop. So the idea of an almanac diary, just brief notes on the day kept in an almanac, was different, of course, from a diary where a person might share their feelings and secrets, but it followed the form of the almanac, so it just listed facts and events as a sort of record. There is also this secondary aspect regarding diary keeping and almanacs that's linked to economic class that was in play historically. So when it was common for people to start using their almanacs as diaries, people with more money could pay to have extra blank pages tipped in. So even putting one's thoughts on paper in any kind of expansive way became something of a luxury. If you only have a brief column and you can't afford more paper to be added, you got to keep things brief. Over time, though, both demand for more notation space and a drop in the reputation of the almanac led to the various facts, tables, and title information being supplanted by more blank pages until finally somebody had the thought to produce a calendar that was intended primarily for writing in. It was a date book. In 1748, Robert Dodsley of London printed a new memoranda book for the following year. This was a small book that had space for financial transactions as well as appointments and notes, and it became very popular in England, so much so that other publishers started producing them. And then one publisher got the idea that someone should sell them in North America. And that person was publisher Robert Aitken. Aitken was born in Scotland in 1734 and emigrated to the colonies around 1770. I saw different years for this from 1769 to 1771. Uh, He set up a printing shop in Philadelphia. And just a few years after he got there, he produced the complete annual account book and calendar for the pocket or desk for 1773. 
This date book wasn't completely devoid of some of the tables found in almanacs. It had those, but it was secondary. It really just had a lot more blank pages, 52 of them, so one spread for each week. And they were laid out in a way that a user could easily scan the whole week. So it was easy to write down things like appointments and then reference them again later. That was something that was less fluid and smooth if you were writing appointments on a page that shared space with things like planetary movements, the moon phases, and weather predictions. On the left page of a two-page spread for the week, there was a grid laid out to note expenses and income. And then on the right-hand side, it had dated cells to write whatever was pertinent to any given day. It sounds revolutionary, and it was, except not many people were into it. It was such a departure from the way people had been accustomed to noting their days that they needed to have it explained to them. That explanation was included in the book. People were just not really ready for the idea of writing down things that were going to happen in the future. They were accustomed to and content with noting what had already happened on a given day. If they did want to record more thoughts, they tended to keep those in a separate, dedicated diary that wasn't tied to any kind of calendar. Plus, all those blank pages made Aitken's annual hard to carry around, even though it was still relatively small. When Aitken published a follow-up book in 1774, he made it an almanac, not a date book, with just a few blank pages, and then he ultimately dropped those as well, although he continued working as a publisher. Yeah, he kind of gave up on the whole almanac datebook thing. But obviously, date books with formats very similar to Aitken's were eventually adopted in the U.S. By the second decade of the 19th century, their popularity in Great Britain had finally kind of worked its way over to North America. If Aitken had lived 20 years past his death in 1802, he would have seen the surge in popularity of those books. They became almost a little bit of a fad, and then people quickly realized the benefit of having a record and planner close at hand. How this fad popped up is difficult to track, but one contributor was really just a simple matter of materials. Paper had become more readily available, so printers could print more different products and charge less, meaning there was a greater chance that those products would find customers. During the U.S. Civil War, date books were issued to Union soldiers, and once the war ended, pocket planners became even more popular. They spread from metropolitan areas to less densely populated towns. These also started to reflect a shift in the way people lived, as they had columns for bill due dates, spaces for addresses of friends and acquaintances, and appointments, as well as notes. But what wasn't there was all the almanac data. As that part had shrunk out of the pages, the popularity of the date book had increased. The date book became so popular that by the end of the 19th century, Montgomery Ward introduced a product called the Standard Diary, which was meant to offer anyone the chance to fully account for their time and finances. This rise in popularity of date books, which were called everything from diaries to pocketbooks to um, still sometimes almanacs, etc., had this questionable effect that we are all still grappling with today, right? Planner consumers started to consider how to make the most of their time because they started to think about time differently. When your time is noted in the margins of something like an almanac and how your day played out, it may seem a little bit secondary to a larger picture, but when it's the focus of an entire blank book, you are almost certain to think about it with more gravity. And it changed the way that people thought about their days and about themselves. 
As the 20th century began, date books once again evolved as they had become so integral to daily life that branded versions, which were essentially advertisement vehicles, started to pop up. Department stores would give away free planners that had ads throughout their pages, Just as almanacs had included everything from patent medicine ads to calls for abolition, planners with marketing also became common. And of course, the 20th century also saw wide diversification of planners. Today, design variations abound from what's featured on the cover to how planning is managed within the pages. There are general planners, goal-setting planners, planners for specific activities like running or sewing or even how many books you read. Business Research Insights reports that in 2022, the diaries and planners market was worth more than a billion dollars. That's a billion with a B. And it's projected to reach almost 1.5 billion by 2031. And this actually shows a big bounce back from a drop that happened during pandemic lockdown. And it's interesting because it also shows growth despite digital options uh, due to people valuing what the report calls a disciplined lifestyle and a new surge in the popularity of diary keeping. So things are evolving, but we're just repeating everything that's come before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I hope, you know, we we also, I will note, this covers primarily like English language diaries and almanacs. Sure. Um, we'll talk about one little factoid I came across in my research that I couldn't really find a lot of information on um, in another language, and we'll get to that in our behind the scenes. But right now, I have a little listener mail, and then we'll go finish our recovery from our New Year's Eve celebrations. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is about Masons, which we talked about on our William Morgan episodes. Uh, This is from our listener, Greg, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I found your podcast on the abduction of William Morgan fascinating. Not only the story itself, but because my dad was a Mason, and he was always a bit vague about it. He was a successful small-town businessman, and sometime in the 1970s, he was invited to join the Masons. As a kid, I always wanted to wear his sparkly red fez hat with the long tassel, which we still have to this day. He never really told me much about it except that it was a social group. Over time, he became an inactive member. I asked him why he stopped going, and it really just came down to social circles. He and Mom were flower lovers. Dad hybridized iris and daylilies, and they found their participation in flower clubs more fun for them. Okay, I'm kind of in awe of your dad right now, Greg. Um, But the Masons were very good to my dad. There is a rule in the Masonic organization that they will take care of any Mason who lives long enough to run out of money. This was the case with my dad, who lived to be 92. Despite his savings, we all know the high cost of living and assisted living drains those savings quickly. That's where the Masons came in. Once dad was out of money, obviously not counting his monthly Social Security benefits, the Masons stepped in and they paid dad's expenses until he passed. This was probably six to eight months worth of expenses. Our family will forever be grateful to the kindness of Masons. Uh, That's a great story. I love it. Attached is a two-for-one. It's a picture of Greg's dad and his cat Priscilla. Priscilla liked to take rides on my dad's walker. My parents had three cats and they knew when it was bedtime. Dad would call them and they would run in and beat him to the bed. Once they knew he was asleep, they would get up and do their nightly kitty things. Then they would be bedside at 5 a.m. for when dad woke up. All of my parents' kitties were the best. When it was time to move Dad to assisted living, two of the kitties found good homes, and the third, his favorite, decided to cross the Rainbow Bridge. I'm sorry you lost your dad. He sounds amazing. And this is the cutest picture I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, I... (laughs) 
It's so funny because the cat is just like, this is my conveyance now. Um, I love it so much and the cat is adorable and your dad sounds like a wonderful person. If you would like to write to us, make me cry a little bit, you can do that at History <laughs> History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you have not yet subscribed, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere that you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.